Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, a radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Wealth Matters is presented to you by Gasowitz Frankel, a fiduciary litigation law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether it be through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. At Gasowitz Frankel, we see the problems that come up with families and businesses who are not successful in their wealth and transition planning, and hopefully today we'll talk about ways that you can be successful. For news, pictures, and tips, follow Gasowitz Frankel on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Adam Gasowitz and Craig Frankel, and today we are talking about how wealthy families can talk with their children about wealth. Before we start, you may already know that our law firm is participating in a uh, charitable giving uh, year. We're celebrating our 25th anniversary, and so we like to start the show by giving a shout-out to the two charities that we supported uh, this month. That would be the uh, Clifton Sanctuary, which is a men's shelter in Decatur, Georgia, and uh, Street Smart Youth Project, a nonprofit that facilitates transitions to healthy, productive, and self-sufficient lives for inner-city children. So let me introduce our guest for today. Uh, we have with us uh, Donna Trammell, who is Managing Director uh, and Director of Family Wealth Stewardship at Bessemer Trust. Uh, Barry Frankel, who is a uh, partner at the accounting firm of Haber, Farragetti & Wynn. And David Dotson, who is Executive Director at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. And before we start, I'd, I'd like to just have each of you um, just tell me a little bit about yourself and your firm. Uh, Donna, why don't you start? Great. Um, so I'm with a firm named Bessemer Trust. We're a multifamily office uh, that's been in existence since our founder, Henry Phipps, began it in the turn of the century. So we have over 100 years. The of turn this. of the last century, because the other the turn of the century is only like, you know, true. <laughs> my kid's age. <laughs> yeah, no, we've, we've been around for a little while. Um, and we um, work with multi-generational families. Uh, we have 2,200 families. We oversee $97 billion in assets. And we provide, as you might imagine, as a family office, a comprehensive array of services, everything from investment management to philanthropic advisory, insurance. Um, and along with my role there, which is as director of Family Wealth Stewardship, working with families to uh, come up with strategies to educate the next generation of inheritors, as well as assist with multi-generational family communication and governance structures. Uh, Barry? Well, I'm Barry Frankel. I'm a partner with the accounting firm Habefair Getting Win, which is about the 45th largest CPA firm in the country based in Atlanta. We're heading into our 65th year. We do everything from tax returns to audits of companies around the world. We also do some wealth management. We do forensic accounting. We do IT support and assurance. My role, I started our financial planning practice back in 1987. That has now grown into a wealth management. I spent a lot of my time on the other side, the dark side, doing forensic accounting on people that don't do it right. Divorces, family disputes that turn bad, business disputes that turn bad. And David? Yeah, well, as, as mentioned, I'm executive director at Morgan Stanley, and we provide wealth management. And just coincidentally, this month we announced that we oversee now $2 trillion in assets. So our challenge on the Dodson-McDavid team is to make a large firm feel small. And to that end, we manage relationships for something uh, just south of 50 relationships in total. As you might expect, all of those clients have been very, very successful. So alongside their, their uh, motivation to have their assets uh, managed properly uh, from a wealth management perspective and the planning 
done accordingly. Uh, we also focus on making sure that we transfer assets and protect assets in a way that's both constructive and efficient for the families. Okay. All right. Well, let's start in with our questions. Uh, the first question, I'll, uh, I'll start with you, Donna, and I know there's no easy answer to this question, but uh, when is the best time or times to start talking to your children about money and the family's assets? Uh, it's not an easy question to answer, of course, but I think clients often conflate two things. One is teaching about money skills, and the other is revealing the wealth. And I think when they come to us with the how do we tell question, there's a mountain of anxiety behind that question because of this conflation of those two things. So we really see um, that the process is one of an apprenticeship. So that we really encourage incremental learning and incremental responsibility starting at quite an early age. So what that is that early age? We can start as early as five years old, introducing strategies for the parents to um, work with their children at their homes. And then we come into the picture when they're in their teens and early 20s. Um, but there's a very... Uh, wonderful sort of age-appropriate way of building in these life skills early on and, and progressing and, and incrementally giving them both responsibility and increased vocabulary, increased awareness of concepts that drive the wealth management um, planning process. So that's really our approach. It's trying to help them separate those two and reduce some of those anxieties that they feel. Barry, I'm going to attack you. You have my last name, but we're not related. But I started talking to my dad about passing his wealth when I was about three years old. Um, he didn't really respond well to that. Uh, but, but talk to us about how you talk to your clients. When, when Dada gets her clients, they often are coming to her, I think, knowing they want to do this. So I would say politely and respectfully, they're almost better educated to start with. And that's great. And, and that is what Donna does. People coming to you may not be seeing it that way. They may be entering through a different door. And so they may not be as receptive to hearing that they need to talk to their children about wealth. So how do you approach it? It's funny you say that. The first financial plan I did in 1980 the parents walked, uh, husband and wife walked in, and we said, well, what do you want your children to inherit? And he said, we want to spend the last dollar. <laughs> my first thought was, these people will never meet my parents. <laughs> we came to, the, to help them understand that they're going to, in spite of everything they do, they're going to have wealth to pass. And they had children that uh, their children were actually in their 20s, and that's a little, to me, that's a little late. I remember early on, uh, uh, my father would take would drag me on Sundays around town to meet to see real estate deals that he may have put a little bit of money in, and I talked to you know I'd sit there while he talked to the developer, the construction manager, and walk around apartment empty apartment buildings and see what was going on. That was his way of introducing me to just finance to to what money is all about. He had a little grocery store down on Broad Street. And he said, all right, you're going to stand there in front of the produce, and when the lettuce falls, pick it up and put it back in the bin because every piece of lettuce is going to go – it's worth a penny. And, and it's instilling those concepts of what wealth is all about. And from our perspective, from the accounting perspective, we look at it and we say, well, wait a second. Sometimes the client doesn't even understand wealth. You know, you look at a tax return of somebody that makes six figures and the charitable gift – is $250 to the United Way, and they think they're doing a great thing. You scratch your head as well. We've seen much more generosity, and if you're not generous today, how are you going to encourage your children to, to be that way? And if everything you do is wrapped up in you, why do you think your children are going to be any different? 
So it's a it's a process where you really have to educate them. But let's talk about that because I see in in my clients and including the clients that fail, bringing charity in as part of the education to be really one of the most effective ways to get the children to participate. So I, I throw it out to anybody, David. You can start. How do you help a kid learn about charity within the family that may enable them? to be good stewards, so to speak, of the family's money later on? Well, I would, I would answer the question from the vantage point of both kind of a wealth management planning perspective, but also as a volunteer and a lot of nonprofits and board members myself. And I would say that the common answer that you'll hear kind of in the financial services industry and the nonprofit community is get them involved in the family foundation, get them involved in the donor advised fund and so forth. But I would also say put the boots on the ground. Because if you look at the most substantial donors, and you guys mentioned some charities that you're involved with at the beginning of the program, the reality is the people that are going to give most aggressively, demonstrate the highest level of commitment, are going to be the boots-on-the-ground volunteers that show up at events, that get their hands dirty, and so forth. So I think sometimes uh, we will mistakenly take the approach that if we get the kids around the table and we vote on who we're going to give money to, that's good enough. I would argue that's probably not good enough because that's a ledgering Are your clients at least doing that, sitting around the table and talking to their kids about who at least some of the family charity should go to? Yeah, absolutely. And the only caveat that I would put to that is that you have to also be cognizant of the fact that when you engage the kids, you have to let them have an actual voice and actually be determinant in where money goes. I remember one uh, meeting that I had years ago, and the daughter, who was an adult daughter, leaned over to me during the meeting and whispered, uh, and I won't name the university, but very large university, local, southern-based university. And sure enough, the matriarch proceeds to say, that's where the money's going. So we've had an idea discussion for 30 minutes about where it might presumably go, but the answer's already predetermined. You know? Barry and, and Donna, are, y'all, are your families talking about charity and who they should give to early on? Yes, for the most part. And I would completely agree with your statement that you really have to allow the next generation to make their voice heard when it comes to philanthropic endeavors. The other thing I would add to that is really it takes some practice to be able to give wisely. And we encourage our clients to start early and in small amounts. Again, really having their children um, participate in meetings about where to give the money, making recommendations to the family after they've researched the topic themselves, and then really following up on a volunteer basis with the organization, and after a year's time, understanding where that money went. One of my favorite um, approaches in this regard is Grandparents' Day. Uh, the suggestion that typically around Thanksgiving, um, we get the grandchildren together with the grandparents, um, and we prearrange site visits with things that the grandchildren would be interested in, such as a local zoo or uh, the children's museum. And they all troop about the, the town, visiting these sites, um, speaking with the director of development, understanding the needs of these organizations. And then at the end of the day, the grandparents say, we're going to give X amount. Let's all decide which charity we like the best. That's cool. Well, I, I, we're, we're, presu- we're presuming that, that charitable giving and the idea of instilling charity in your children is a good thing in terms of wealth uh, planning and in terms of bringing kids along in the, in the family. But is that necessarily true? We see plenty of families who, who don't seem to have much of a sense of giving back to the community. How, how important is that sense? Uh, I was, my wife and I were blessed last Saturday with our first grandchild out in Dallas, Texas. You're not old enough for that. <laughs> My wife's not. <laughs> the, uh, the first thing that went to the baby's room was a charity box. 
and there's one. This is in the hospital room. Took a little plastic cup and, cup and wrote charity on it and stuck a dollar in it. He'll have that same a similar permanent box in his room. At, he has one at his at home, and hopefully he'll see his parents put a dime in it, a quarter in it, a dollar in it from time to time, and he'll get used to it. And then they they've got that instilled from birth. He'll be instilled with a a charitable spirit because it's a realization that the parents need to instill. The parents have to have it first. The parents don't have it. It's an uphill battle. But the concept is you may accumulate a lot of wealth, but it's, it's not permanent. It's not yours. It's yours to, to spread and help other people. And the good thing about it, when we were out there, our last night we spent with a, one of my cousins who unfortunately is suffering with ovarian cancer. Well, she started her own foundation four years ago called Be the Difference She's raised about $2 million while suffering with stage 4 ovarian cancer. And the last night we were with her, my wife wrote her a check. She turned around and wrote a check to Georgia Special Olympics. And it's just her children and her grandchildren are going to see her doing this, and they're going to know that that's what life is all about. It's, it's, accumulating wealth is great. You can buy all the toys in the world. But if you want your children to have a sense of financial values, you've got to start somewhere. And charity is a great place to start. I have a, a friend who about 15 years ago started this product. I'm not sure it's successful today, but it's a piggy bank that has three slots. One slot is savings, one slot is charity, and one slot is spending. That's brilliant. It, it, and I'm curious, is that – are there other – and I thought it was great, and we used it in our family some, not always successfully because the parents forgot – are there other tools like that that you're seeing that can be used to help kids try to figure out how to use money? Well, first, I, I, we are such believers in that approach. Um, for families who really want to begin the training early, it's a wonderful way to introduce allowance. Um, we think allowance is a really big learning tool. Uh, and allowance can be a tool that's used to have teachable moments over the course of their uh, – all the way up through teenage years – uh, so the spend, save, share has also, new research has just proven that actually um, when you establish this pattern early, the children have less of a regard for materialism. Um, this is going to be published in Scientific American really? later this, this year. Um, so very exciting research is, is suggesting that self-esteem can really be built early on with confidence about handling money. So I really appreciate that there are so many other great strategies to use with children in different ages, but honestly, that's a great place to start. Well, and as, a, as a practical consideration, too, it's almost a release valve when you have that spending component, because otherwise, if you kind of take the stoic approach that we're going to safeguard every dollar that's ever presumed to be family wealth, it, it loses the appeal to the next generation. And I would actually add one of the tactics we do um, regarding the idea of delayed set gratification, which is another really important um, skill that these children develop, is for the spending jar, um, often kids will come up with ideas of what they want to spend the money on on a frequent basis. So we encourage our parents to just put a piece of paper by the refrigerator, write down what it is they want to spend the money on, and in a, at the end of the month, prioritize that list and then match it to the saving that has been accumulated. So they're really learning this d delayed gratification, this prioritization, the, the trade-offs that come with making decisions about money. All right, you're listening to Wealth Matters, a radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Adam Gaslowitz and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. 
We're talking today with Donna Trammell, Barry Frankel, and David Dotson, and we're discussing how wealthy families can talk to their children about wealth. Um, did you have more that you want to say on that? Uh, question I had about, um, we're starting, we're talking about kids at a very young age at this point, and I kind of want to move up, up through the ages. But before we get to that, how and in what form do you start giving kids access to the wealth? I mean, you know, with allowances or with uh, some share of the family wealth. I mean, do you, do you ever talk to them about that? And um, I'll throw it summer, over Summer jobs. Summer jobs. Summer jobs. How old do you start summer jobs or summer responsibilities? Uh, I, I've seen people start six, seven, eight years old, it, particularly people that have their own business office. Hey, you bring the child in, let them do everything from – used to be you could sharpen the pencil, but nobody uses pencils anymore, uh, or, or em- empty the trash can. Russians do in space, by the way. <laughs> That's what they use as opposed to fancy pens, but go on. The, uh, the, but summer job, so the child has a sense of, wait a second, I earned this. I can actually become productive. I can add to it. You know, you see the old TV show where I guess it's the uh, greatest game ever played where the, the golfer Francis uh, – Widow or whatever his name was, earns 25 cents as a cat, and he puts it in the jar for the family. That, that concept is great. Have the kid get a summer job or the children get summer jobs, be it in your business or, or just up at the Kroger bagging groceries. Or we had a friend whose son every winter sold Christmas trees up at Johnston's Ferry and Lower Russell Road. And, and that helps them understand the value of hard work. As, as a parent, I find it very hard to resist giving my kids certainly what they need, but most of what they want. And I look around their peer group, and I I think of my daughter who says, why don't I have this? And my knee-jerk, of course, is because you don't deserve it. But my real (laughs) answer is because you need to earn it. But how do parents who have the ability, perhaps greater than than their own parents, or maybe the same, resist that urge to give their children what their children want? David, why don't you try The first thing that comes to mind is my mother used to say, just because. Because the reality is, and this is kind of notional, but you have to instill this false sense of scarcity. There is no scarcity for a great many of the families that we deal with. They can have anything that they want at any time that they want that. So if there's not a demonstrated need per se, sometimes you have to be kind of a little little, uh, artificial in the motivation to say, we're not going to do it just because particularly at a young age. But the thing that I would, I would kind of back up against that, which is probably, uh, I thought of it earlier, I was following on Donna's comments, I thought that kind of she was leading right into this, which is I think that, you know, when we talk about a lot of big, uh, big picture issues for children, particularly teens, we talk about things in, in the context of the talk. This is not the talk. This is a dialogue that's dynamic because um, you take your teenage daughter, for example, and she has certain kind of framework, frame of reference that she's operating in in junior high and then high school. When she's married, now you've introduced a new dynamic with the son-in-law and the in-laws and so forth. So this is not a talk that happens once. And it may be a talk that uh, doesn't take, let's say, for a 9-year-old or a 13-year-old or a 21-year-old. But at 33, you know, when we start kind of moving closer and closer to the point of departure where we actually are going to see some asset transfer that's significant, Though all of the cumulative talks that you have had over a long period of time, during which time you've been educating and steering that child, can come to fruition. So, As an advisor, well, how do you talk to your family about that? Because the family may be struggling with this issue, and an advisor may be particularly well-positioned to give some direction. Is the, uh, 
I think you really start with empathy. You really need to understand that this is a challenging thing for a parent to do, particularly in an environment of wealth. We had one client put it so beautifully, how do I convince my daughter to buy only one sweater when she knows she could buy the entire store? These are really not easy challenges. They want their children to be independent, but they want them to benefit from the wealth. They want them to be relatively frugal or modest in their savings, but they want them to have the best. You know, these are conundrums that are um, solved differently within each family. But I think really having the, the parents understand that, you know, we've seen these challenges. We, we really feel that they are solvable, but they take some time and some thought. The parents have to be on the same page. It's like that oxygen mask analogy. If you don't have your values straight about the money and about how to teach uh, money skills and values, then you really can't possibly do that with your children. So that's often where we start with the parents and, and what they really want the wealth to accomplish with their family. The, the, other, the other thing, I, I had an entrepreneurial client one time that educated me to this vantage point, is he shares the risk component of wealth with his children as well. So, for example, for a child to look at a parent and say, well, you have $4.5 million, it's liquid, it's in the bank, whatever. Well, when you share with them that there's a risk component, there's another part of the income statement um, or, or balance sheet, where you have $74 million invested in property, plant, and equipment, you know, do you want to share in that as well? Most children, then they start kind of referencing it in a context of, this is not a gimme. Yeah, but a lot of the families we're dealing with and that you're dealing with are uh, first-generation wealth. A family uh, worked hard all their lives. They, they came from nothing or, or little, and they made something. And when they get to the point where they've succeeded, they want to enjoy the fruits of their label. So they want to live in a neighborhood that represents the wealth they have. They want to drive a nice car. They want to go to send their kids to nice schools. And, and when you do that, you, you then expose your kids to this different environment. <clears throat> so how do, you, how do you enjoy the fruits of your labor without passing on the message to your kids that this is normal, that this is the environment that we all now live in? You, you, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, an easy way is you get them involved in, in organizations that, Deal with people that aren't as fortunate as you are. I mean, there, there are so many opportunities in Atlanta to help other people. It's interesting. Hey, Farragutian Win every year has a volunteer day. And we don't go to the places most people go to. We go to, uh, sure, we go to the food bank. We work at the food bank. We go to a place over in Decatur where they take unused medical supplies. My son's favorite charity. Incredible. And they, they sort a thousand different kinds of syringes that are in the packages so that they can send them off to third world countries. And they'll take volunteers all day long. And, and a family can do that. They can go over there as a family and say, hey, wait a second, we're going to spend a day working here or we're going to go sort eyeglasses by prescription versus non-prescription so they can give it by a lighthouse for the blind. I think that's what they still call it, uh, the Lions Charity, so that people realize they're not as wealthy or just drive through parts of town that that aren't as savory so to speak as your your neighborhood out in east Cobb or north fulton I mean, are you are your families doing this i find that the the the, the, the starting of doing hands-on kind of volunteering is is often difficult for adults and children are your families actually going out and doing these charities or are they struggling with that I, where we see it most, um, quite ironically, is within the second generation of wealth. 
So the generation that grew up and maybe there wasn't much conversation about money, maybe their inheritance or the plan for the money was, was a little bit vague and they didn't, couldn't really plan around that. We see those as a determined parents that this will not happen with their children. And so they're the ones who tend to, to start early. They build in philanthropy. They build in the sense of responsibility. They're quite intentional about the way they parent. And I think that's something that, um, that they've learned over time. And this is the second generation. Correct. What I'm seeing, uh, which is surprisingly good, is the second and third generation are often, and they know it, smarter than their parents. They come out of school with great concepts. They know how to run businesses correctly. They know how to relate to people because they've had the psychology courses, the management courses, and actually they can move into mom or dad's business and run it better. They can do things for their parents that their parents couldn't do for themselves, and that that is a great Turn. I think education today is better than it was. College education today is better than it was 30 or 40 years ago in that. 30, 40 years ago, people went to college to get a job. Now they're not only getting a job, but they're coming out much better educated. And those, that skill set also reverberates back to the family. So they, they're actually better I think this generation may be better than our generation was. David, are you seeing the same thing, that the, the next generation – Second generation is better at dealing with the money and that they may be better suited or educated for doing that? Um, I think it depends. There's even a high degree of variability, and you guys have lived this many times as well, even within the same family, within the same oh, yeah. set of siblings. You know, So it's kind of uh, individual dependent. So, um, and and I, w- I was just thinking earlier, too, and I, I just mentioned this, too, that we talked a lot about charity. But what I hear so often is not – I hear charity, to be sure, but I also hear prudence and good stewardship which is, I would say, 80% of our clients are more focused on that than the philanthropy channel. Because, I mean, even in a best-case scenario, how much of annual income is actually being directed to charity, the overwhelming majority is kind of kept in the family kitty. And that's kind of that learned scarcity. And particularly now, we're kind of seeing the roll-off of the Depression-era children who are transferring wealth. And now you're kind of in the arena, like you said, kind of first-generation wealth creators. Um, so the dynamic has changed a little bit in that regard because that scarcity mentality, interestingly enough, and you guys have probably seen the research on this, um, this the kind of Depression-era mentality is more pointed now towards younger children than the rest of us. Yeah. So, you know, the people at the table, our children may be more conservative in investment uh, uh, concerns than others. It, it, well, I, I see an interesting phenomenon is you have a lot of families where one or two children are very successful and the third child may be uh, – may have learning disabilities, may have behavioral problems, and the older children or the younger children have to take care of that sibling throughout life. Situation where mom or dad gives the kid a job and keeps the child employed and and can take care of this child that can't survive on their own effectively. And when mom and dad are gone, the siblings are going to have that responsibility. And that, to me, is, is something that is very, very difficult to educate because then you've got to want your child to say, hey, wait a second, you can't forget your sibling. You've got to take care of your sibling. And that education to me is perhaps scarier than anything else out there. Barry, Barry mentioned that uh, oftentimes the children are better educated and know more. I, my children clearly know more because they've told me. Um, <laughs> but how do you resist that? Because the humor aside, the children really do think they often know better than their parents. And yet 
not sure they do. So how how are you able to convey, even if you are smarter or better educated than your parent, the sense of responsibility, the need to take care of your siblings or other members of the family? How do you do that? Well, this sense of stewardship that you brought up is both a mindset and it's an education, right? So the the mindset is that you are part of a, a larger family. Um, you are one link in a chain that goes backwards and forwards. There's a story and context behind the creation of the wealth that is typically very important. Um, as well, there is a story of other parts of the family, and the story is an oscillating narrative. There, there are uh, highs and lows, setbacks, victories, and all of this is quite important to set the context for that stewardship. But the educational part is simply math, right? If you have a portfolio and you're looking at that value over time, we often show our clients various withdrawal rates off of the portfolio from zero to two to four to six. It's an eye-opener for families when they realize that they really have to be very, very deliberate about this process in order to preserve the wealth through generations. I, I would just echo that. That's spot on because it's exactly the, the process that we would take. Because the children, and you mentioned empathy earlier as well too, they don't understand the math. Like I'll give you a, a very kind of uh, pertinent story. Uh, several years ago we had a client that the mother came in and she was very concerned because the daughter is constantly asking for money. And, and frankly the advisor was concerned because of the withdrawal rate. And the mother, I think, in this particular context was 70-something years old. Let's say she had $2 million, and the child was pretty consistently coming to her for 50000 here, 70000 there. Well, when we brought the daughter in to kind of explain the context through which this is happening, $2 million to someone that doesn't have $2 million seems like a, a monumental amount of money um, to which there's no bottom. But when you're talking about a 70-year-old that has a spend rate of X and a lifespan of another 20, 25, 27 years, you don't get from here to there. And it was very, very interesting because at one point during the meeting, it clicked for the daughter, and she burst into tears. She said, I had no idea. I thought if she was giving it to me, she could. But to your point, I mean, if you do the math and do the withdrawal rates, and we also do something called Monte Carlo simulation, which is a probability, probabilistic kind of analysis, and we all do that, um, it can show you kind of best case uh, outcomes as well as worst case outcomes. And that will oftentimes kind of get the attention of a child real quick. So, so are you arranging uh, or, or organizing for your clients regular meetings, periodic meetings with the family so that they actually convey these messages in an in a organized fashion over time? So we're a huge believer in family meetings um, because communication is really at the heart of everything we've been talking about today. Um, even if it's a difficult conversation, if it's a conversation about prenups or a business succession, you know, we work with clients to help structure those conversations. We borrow straight out of the page of Harvard Business School's, you know, negotiating skills. There are ways to really present um, conversations that have a lot of tension to them um, in a way that can be very less uh, risky and more uh comfortable for clients. So we talk to clients um, about issues all the time. We share, we facilitate multi-generational family meetings, and there are some definite tricks to that, right? You have a millennial in the room with a traditionalist. You know, that's a very different lens through which they're both seeing the communication. So, um, but we also really encourage the, the focus of the meeting not necessarily to be all about the money. You know, there's, I stand on some great shoulders when I talk about the other sources of family capital, the intellectual capital, 
the um, social capital, the human capital that exists within a family. Once you start expanding a family's conversation about themselves and their identity beyond the financial capital, really good things happen. That's great. You're listening to Wealth Matters, a radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Adam Gaslowitz and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary law firm, litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. And we're talking today to Donna Trammell, Barry Frankel, and David Dotson about how wealthy families can talk to their children about wealth. So how, how important then in these meetings <clears throat> is it for the family to have a mission statement, something that the family actually believes in and follows and nurtures in the generations? Mission statements can be helpful. Very few clients have them in reality. Um, and I think to some degree, I get that. I, I think if you spend a lot of time developing a mission statement, um, that time could actually be used in a lot of other ways that are much more productive for your family. And I would put amongst them at the top in shared learning. Have the family learn not only about financial concepts, but, but about other families who've been successful in, in tackling some of these problems. Having outside experts attend a family meeting to talk about whether they're wealth psychologists or they're family business owners. You know, expanding the overall family's education about this very important task is something that we, we believe even more than maybe a mission statement. How do you start? I mean, you, you gave the example, Donna, of millennials versus traditionalists. But I look at people of my parents' generation, I'm not, I don't know how I would get them to even start to have a conversation like that because from their perspective, whether it's money or family values, it's actually really hard to talk about. So, so Barry, how do you get somebody to start talking about it? it to start talking, you, you point out the problem and say, look, <laughs> in spite of everything you've tried to do, you're going to leave this estate. Now, do you think your children are prepared for it? And, it, and it's funny. It's not just the, the wealthy. It's not somebody with 5 or 10 or 20 or $100 million. If somebody drops dead today owning a, a home with, with most of the mortgage paid off and a half million dollars of life insurance, all of a sudden the beneficiaries pick up a million and a half dollars. And with all due respect, that creates a lot of work for you guys. <laughs> Thank you, by the way. Uh, but because, because the children fight over the money. I, I remember the, one of the first engagements I worked for, uh, worked with hey, at Hey Before I Get In, when was an estate with, with four beneficiaries, and they kicked the fourth one out of the family because three of them said, all right, we, we want the estate, and we don't want the fourth one. We don't, we don't like her. Uh, and my partner, Merrill Lynn, said, Barry, get used to it. That's what estates sometimes are all about. And that came from poor education. That was a result of the parents not educating the children about life's values and, and how to maybe they educate them too well on how to manage money because they all wanted it. But I, I remember um, uh, one of the, my great mentors, uh, may you rest in peace, was, was Jimmy Arrighetti. And Mr. Arrighetti would was a CPA. He started. He's one of the founders of our firm. He had four children. Two of them became lawyers, and two of them became accountants. I'm not going to tell you which two I think are the smarter. <laughs> <laughs> but he got all of them involved in understanding finance early on, probably when they were in high school, so they would follow the right direction. And he formed a family partnership. It was the first family partnership I ever saw, and I, I remember this goes back to the 60s or early 70s. 
And he got them involved in the decision-making very, very early on. By the time they were out of college, they knew they had to be part of this family partnership. Be it a small one or a large one is irrelevant. They were part of a team with their dad. Now, it doesn't always work. Sometimes you'll have this go on, and there'll be five siblings, and three of them will take to the business, and two of them will just they'll be spendthrifts. You're not always going to be successful. Well, then along those lines, how do you pass on a lot of wealth without creating a generation that doesn't feel the need to do anything? Spend it. <laughs> That's my favorite way. But can, can, I, can I take a half step back just to ask the, answer the question about yeah, you tell, tell us how you get your yeah. clients to talk because I think it's a challenge. Yeah, um, and this may be a little disingenuous. Taxes. Taxes will get them to the table. You tell the second generation, here's what, ha- here's what happens badly. You think you're getting $20 million. You're not. There are three of you. There are taxes. There's you know, closing costs, settlement costs. All of a sudden, your fractional share is X. You've gotten their attention. They You've will gotten come the, the second table. generation's attention, right. but you haven't gotten the first well, generation. Well, the same, the same process applies to the first generation because the other thing is, you kind of hinted at this, complex planning. The kids need to know and understand what's going to happen. And so you start drawing the kids in, and you also can have them understand and appreciate the complexity of wealth. I've had children saying, you all have too, I'm sure. Money's hard. I had no idea granddad or father or whomever had, had this degree of planning involved. So when you start stepping through, you know, we set up an LLC, we did a sale to defective, we did all this type of stuff, and then all of a sudden all of this is going to come to rest on the shoulders of whomever, whomever the next generation is. We need to explain that. And it also addresses the question, which I think you're kind of hinting at, is, and this is seemingly a little disparaging comment, but a lot of first-generation wealth creators will think about a lot of the topics that we're talking about as kind of touchy-feely and not worthy of serious discussion in a business setting. So, Donna, how did you do it? How do you get your families to start the conversation? Okay, so there's this group called the Millennials. They're in their late teens and, in, and through their early 30s, and they are not afraid to ask. So sometimes we tell our client <laughs> families, this is going to come up, and it may not be at a time and place that you're ready to answer the question. But they are very conversant with money. They're very communicative with each other. They, they are a, a generation that is used to sharing and feedback. So in many ways, um, they are helping us in this communication process because we really don't want a parent to be caught um, off guard with that, how to answer that question. All right. So, and the next question is, sooner or later, they're going to be passed on a, a large amount of money. Um, even with values, how do you keep a generation that inherits a large amount of wealth from becoming a generation that doesn't do anything? Or has a skewed view of wealth or, or values? Yeah, it's, and that's where that kind of early and long conversation takes place, that preparation. Because so often when a wealth transfer plan is driven by tax efficiency, there isn't enough attention paid to what impact that's going to have on their lives. And I'm not a big fan of the word entitlement because I think it points a finger squarely at that next generation when there are so many complexities and nuances within a family that are, are allowing that to happen. Um, I really think the best antidote is the context of the family's history and this really intentional strategy of educating them and preparing them for the wealth before it's revealed. We have, I see a lot, or Adam and I see a lot, where, and Barry talked about this, preparing the family for, to take over the business. But the truth is, statistically, 95% of all second-generation businesses will fail. And 
from from our side, it fails normally because you haven't prepared the family for running the business. Even in a family partnership, you'll have a family house, but you didn't plan for the funding or who's going to use it or different family circumstances. And, and, and sometimes I see this as a planning problem. They plan the LLC or the family partnership, but the planner didn't think about how it was going to be managed. How do you, talking to the family, prepare the family to actually manage whatever assets are going to come on board? The first question is you ask the kids, you get the kids with the parents and say, all right, we've got this vacation home in Lake Wobegon. Do you guys really want to go there? And Where maybe- all children are above average. <laughs> And and the they'll they'll if they're honest they'll say to mom and dad no, let's sell the thing, you know, whether you sell it before they die or after they die, if the step up, et cetera, et cetera, you know, you have to get the kids to express an opinion to mom and dad, and you have to get mom and dad to listen to it. Uh, some of the the great screw ups are holding on to Blackacre when nobody wants Blackacre or giving. Billy worked in the business. Let's give Billy the the business and give Susie the investment portfolio. And like you said, that business is is a rock that's going to go to the bottom of the pond. We we don't want the business. Let's let's sell the business now. Let's transition to somebody make somebody else's business and then manage some real wealth. So David, how do you tell your family? Wait a second. You also need to plan for this asset. How are you going to talk about that, that part of the education? Yeah, um, well, I I think fundamentally you kind of, you have to make sure, kind of stepping back half a step too, uh, you have to find the children's passion in all of this. When you talk about, you know, are they going to be a ne'er-do-well if they inherit a bunch of assets that they were unprepared for or whatever, you need to find the passion. Because if someone is going to step into, let's say, a fastener business, to the kid it's just dad makes screws, right? And it's the same thing with a lot of other assets because – and this kind of goes beyond the scope of this conversation, but I think a lot of this is predicated upon the notion that um, the parental value should be the kid's value. When, in fact, the assets that they were dear to them, the business that they built, has no higher value in a legitimate sense than whatever the kid's personal mission might be. You know, I was thinking earlier, you know, it's funny because, you know, if your kid likes to snowboard and you think that's not worthy, you want them to run the plastics business. If they become Sean White... That was a pretty good thing, you know, and we don't know who those people are. And I think the other thing just kind of this is kind of uh, sidebar anecdotally is um, it's, it's not really known exactly who's going to do what in the latter stages of life. And, and now what's happening, too, is the asset transition is happening so late it almost doesn't matter. You know, because if you think about someone that has an actuarial life expectancy to 87 and they had their kids immediately after college, if you don't start early in the gifting process and then you can start learning their values and you can start assessing who has an aptitude to run the business, who doesn't, who will do well with money, who won't, who doesn't care. I've had somebody one time, it's, and this is incomprehensible to most people and kind of the general public, but you know, a niece inherits $10 million and runs out of the room crying. I never wanted anything to do with this money. It's never done anything but That's create Adam's conflict. children. They don't want his money. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you the truth. It's rather interesting to watch. Well, that is a problem, though. People are living longer. People are inheriting much later. And a lot of, uh, of, of our baby boomer generation still has parents who are alive in their 80s and, and 90s, and they still haven't inherited, even though they're nearing retirement age themselves. Um, it's hard to get that, that older generation to think about passing it on sooner because a lot of them live in this, this fear of, of losing it all, of not having enough no matter how much they have. These are not rational 
But that's what a lot of people believe, and I'm sure you've all experienced that. How do you get past that? Sometimes you can't, and that's okay. That's their choice and their prerogative, and we honor that. Um, but we do try our best to present the case for it, um, and we're also really patient. I think as a role as an advisor, you always want to be there, and if the conversation is ready to unfold, you're listening for that cue. It's awesome. Now you have to teach patience? <laughs> <laughs> I, use a, I, I frequently use the analogy of a bucket. We can either let the bucket leak or we can wait till you die and dump the bucket on them and drown the whole family. Most people get that. Let's talk about this on the generation, something Adam mentioned, because we actually are seeing this a lot, where the family, the earning family that earned a lot of money, had really planned to give their wealth to their children, but they lived so much longer. And the children really had anticipated at some point in life without necessarily entitlement to be getting it. But because the family is always worried about is it enough, they don't. And they may do fantastic second, third generation planning. I'm going to give it to my grandchildren. But the dynamic between the first and the second generation is difficult because they didn't really talk about that. Are you all seeing that circumstance? Uh, yeah, every so often we see exactly that happening. I mean, the most important part of any wealth transfer planning is to make sure that the the first person, whether it's the wealth creator or, or the next generation, is taken care of, and that they feel comfortable with the wealth that they have that will last them their lifetime. That's number one. Um, and then you can have the conversations about ultimate beneficiaries of the wealth, be it a charitable institution or the next few generations. But I, I think that I respect that. I think if you can lodge, you can show them sort of the way it will play out um, and make them feel comfortable with that, that's the only way to move into the second conversation. Well, there's some inherent tax advantages to giving money away during during your lifetime. And then there's some other structural planning uh, opportunities like with lead trust or what have you where you can have some kind of dumps periodically into the hands of the children so that it's not kind of this big windfall at end of life. Um, that's sometimes helpful. And also, too, from you know, you can also engineer some strategies around that that involve philanthropy. So you almost have a twofer. Like if you're thinking about a lead trust, you can do two things at once where you're kind of marrying the discussion with philanthropy and good stewardship with you're going to get some money, not at my death necessarily, but in a reasonably. So, so a, lot of, a lot of our listeners may be thinking that, you know, I didn't start this process when my kids were young. My kids are now teenagers or older. Is it too late for me to start having this discussion? Uh, absolutely not. Any time's a good time. Uh, e- even 40s or 50s. You, you, my dad says, you know, my, you're my financial advisor. Advise me. I say, well, give me your money. The, but the a parent hat with with wealth has a responsibility to manage the wealth, and they have the responsibility to educate their children about that. And the children have a responsibility to learn. And by delaying, you, I tell my clients, look, we've got this situation. You've got children. They're mature. You respect them. Go the next step. Educate them. Show them what you have. A lot of times the best, the best executor is the child who has the, the financial common sense and knowledge to do that as a co-executor and an executor because they're ultimately getting in with the money. So show them early on what they're getting into, not so that they become, well, I can't wait to get the money, but make them aware. And make them aware of, as an advisor, I try and make them aware of their parents' needs. 
We're now really kind of ending towards the end of the show, so I'm going to give everybody a softball after Adam cleans up the water that he dropped. Um, tell me, one, if anyone wants to contact you after the show, how they get in touch with you, and give me your one chance, an open-ended question, what's your final advice to a family who has wealth and how you can talk to your children? Let's start with David. Okay, well, I, I would echo what's been said many times, and that is to start the dialogue. Start it early, have it often, never stop. Um, and as to how to contact me, it's david.dodson, that's D-O-D-S-O-N, at ms.com. And if you want to reach me telephonically, 404-365-3206. Barry, you get your one quip and tell us how to call you. Wealth is, is just something you inherit for a short period of time. Do what you can do to preserve it. And the best thing you do is educate your children so that they have the responsibility to preserve it. I can be reached at Barry, B-A-R-R-Y dot Frankel, F-R-A-N-K-E-L at H-A-W-C-P-A dot com. And Donna, you're up. Communication. That's the word that I really think gets to the heart of this. Um, I can be reached at Trammell, T-R-A-M-M-E-L-L at Bessemer, B-E-S-S-E. E-M-E-R.com. Well, as we're wrapping up our show, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, a radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. It's brought to you by the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gasowitz Frankel. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Donna Trammell, who is the managing director of Family Wealth Stewardship at Bessemer Trust. Barry Frankel, no relation but a great name, uh, who is a partner with Habeth Arigetti and Wynn, and David Dotson, who is executive director of Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.